Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Today we're going to pick up in our series, Higher Education, that Pastor Rocky uh, introduced to us a few weeks ago. And essentially the idea, the, the point behind this series is that we're allowing God to take us to school, so to speak. We're learning familiar subjects, but we're viewing them through a divine filter. And so week one, Pastor Rocky taught us social studies, basically how to live and interact with one another, and more specifically, how we can interact with our Father through the teaching of the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus taught us. And then last week, Pastor Rocky taught mathematics, and he shared with us that from the beginning of time, God's plan for humanity has been multiplication. And as Jesus is is teaching in this vineyard, he uses the vineyard as an illustration to talk about how the goal for every believer's life is to have much fruit. It's to multiply the fruit. But in order for that to happen, there has to be subtraction first. There is a pruning process that has to happen, and it's painful, but it's necessary for multiplication. And so today for week three, we are going to be focused in on language arts, more specifically grammar, and so we'll just go ahead and call it God's Grammar. God's grammar is where we're going to be today. John chapter 11 is where we're going to pick up here in just a few moments, and so I want to give you some time to get there if you'd like to on your Bible or your digital device. And um, I wanted to give you just kind of a peek behind the curtain uh, of the planning part of this series. Uh, Pastor Rocky came to me a few weeks ago knowing that he was going to be gone this Sunday and knowing that he had this, this series on his heart that he felt like God wanted to share with uh, DCC, and so he kind of was outlining what week was going to be covering what subject. And I was like, okay, so he's like, first week, social studies. I'm going to take that. Okay, good. Um, next week's going to be math. I'm going to take that. Okay, good. And he's like, third week, you'll be teaching, and it's, it's language arts or grammar. And I thought, what a sick joke this is. <laughs> because if you know me, you know that I'm married to a professional English teacher, right? And so the stress level in my life today is at an all-time high, because when you try to teach something to someone who teaches it for a living, it's really, 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 really stressful. And so I am, like, on, on my best behavior grammatically today, I am trying to make sure that I enunciate everything that I have to say to make sure that I don't slip into any phrases or any grammatically incorrect sentence structure, because I know that my beautiful wife is watching and listening and also judging the whole time that I'm doing this. It's not her fault, it's just that she's really, really good at these things. She's great at understanding, breaking down, and explaining literary works, right? She's amazing at that. She can look at a sentence and know if it's structured correctly or incorrectly. She knows how to format all kinds of things that I don't. Now, I could probably, if you say a sentence to me, I could probably figure out if you're correct or incorrect, but I could not explain to you why that would be. I can't tell you I before E except after C, or I couldn't do all, I can't give you the rules behind it. Deanna can give you all of the rules behind it and would love the opportunity to give you all of the rules behind it if you would just give her a chance to do that. In fact, uh, one of the things that Deanna and I talked about early on in our marriage, because when you know a lot about something and you're passionate about it, you want to share that passion with other people. And for a long time, Deanna's passion came out in the form of correcting other people's grammar mistakes mid-conversation, mid-sentence. Do you, do you know anybody that does that in your world, in your life? They correct your grammar as you're talking sometimes? Just me? A couple people? All right, good. Are, are any of you, let's be real, can we just be transparent and honest, are any of you the grammar corrector? You correct people's grammar? Oh, there's more of you in the room. That says something right there, right? 
So Deanna and I had this conversation early on in our marriage. I said, Deanna, you can correct people's grammar or you can have friends, but you cannot have both. <laughs> it does not work. Those do, they do not hold hands, I'm just saying. And so now Deanna, in all of her, now that she has all of the, the education, she knows all of the things and all of the wisdom added to that, now she just corrects your grammar silently in her head and judges you without you ever knowing it probably. Unless you're married to her and then she still does it out loud to me all the time. All the time. Especially when uh, I use phrases or little idioms that like I, you know, are commonly said incorrectly. One of our favorites right now that I apparently have been saying wrong all my life and just finally realized it because my amazing wife has brought it to my attention and held me accountable for my misdeeds. Um, but I couldn't care less. This phrase that we probably say all the time when you are trying to get across the point that there is something or a subject or an issue that you don't really care about. And what I commonly say is, I could care less. That's what I say. And she corrects me, um, is aggressively the correct word? With love, aggressively saying, no, that literally means the opposite of what you're saying. Literally, that, mean, that, like, that means literally you could care less, which means that you do kind of care about this thing. There is some space for you to care less, so it's could not care less. And I'll be honest with you, I could care less about that rule right there. <laughs> I love you. I'm doing this just to mess with her today. Oh, I love you. But irregardless, let's go ahead and dive right into... Um, just kidding, that's not a word. Please don't use that word. That's not, some of you were like, oh, irregardless, that's a good one I'll add to the, don't. John chapter one, John chapter one, is, or I'm sorry, John chapter 11, rather, as we talk about God's grammar, God's grammar. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now let me just pause here and, and give you uh, just kind of a little bit of a backstory and a heads up. One is that the information in this story about Lazarus, it lasts for 45 verses in chapter 11. We're not gonna read all those verses. We may jump around a little bit. I'll kind of clue you in when we do decide to take those, uh, those leaps. Uh, but something else that's important to know is that Martha and Mary, the two sisters that are named here, that their brother is Lazarus, who is sick uh, in, in this instance. Um, these are the same sisters that we talked about actually a few weeks ago. I had a chance to preach, and I preached a message called One Thing, and it was about how Martha and Mary invited Jesus to their home for dinner. Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus and spend time in his presence, and that was the one thing that mattered most, what Jesus said. Martha was busy and distracted and worried about a lot of things. These are the same sisters. In fact, they even, John even references another occasion where they were in the same place as Jesus, and Mary took it upon herself to wash Jesus' feet with an expensive bottle of perfume and then dry his feet with her hair. And there's so much symbolism and, and all kinds of things that are wrapped into that moment, but it's, it's kind of one of these moments that we study in Scripture often. And so this is the same family. We know this family. They were friends of Jesus. And so in verse four, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. 
We're gonna jump down to verse 17, but what you need to know in the time frame is that somewhere in that, that period of time that we're skipping over, Lazarus dies of this sickness that was uh, plaguing his body. And so in verse 17, it says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard what Je- that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Let's skip down to verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this holy scripture that we have read this morning. God, we pray that it would speak to our hearts and our lives as we know that it is active and living and powerful, God. We pray that it would illuminate truth in our lives, in our hearts, God, and that you would speak directly to us through your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Man, look at somebody beside you and say, God's grammar. Now look at your second round draft pick and tell them, God's grammar. And try not to act offended that they weren't your first pick. So in light of the information that I gave you earlier about my wife being a, uh, an, a language arts master and a, a, a grammar master, like I'm not going to try to dive too deep into the subject of grammar because I am pretty sure I would mess it up and then I would hear about it all day long. And so I'm going to try to keep it simple for all intents and purposes. And simply put, grammar is powerful because words are powerful. You see, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 18, verse 21, that the tongue has the power of life and death. That means that the words that are spoken, the words that we speak, the things that we choose that come out of our mouth, they are extremely powerful to the point where they bring with them the power to bring life or the power to bring death into a moment, into a situation, into another person. And so we know that words are powerful. And so if words are powerful, then that means that punctuation is essential. Can I get an amen for all of our people who love punctuation? Amen. I've heard it said punctuation is actually so powerful that it can save lives. Let me give you an illustration to prove my point. 
Uh, let's just say that in my home, my wife has just made an amazing dinner and it's time for everybody to come to the table to eat together. And so I attempt to gather my children into the room to come to the table and I say something like, let's eat, kids. That sounds pretty appropriate. It makes me sound like I'm a good father gathering my family together because punctuation helps not saying it like this. Let's eat, kids. Those are two very, very different things. One makes me seem like a great dad. The other one makes me seem like the subject of a true crime documentary, right? Punctuation is powerful. And we all know that punctuation marks, they instruct us how to read a certain set of words or thoughts. We know that a period, if you place a period somewhere as you're reading, that is a cue to you, that is a sign to you, it is a rule for you to stop at that moment, that the author decided to stop one thought and they are going to begin another thought and that period is your opportunity to stop reading and to pause, to wait, and then to pick up their thought right after that. We know that the comma is similar, but a little bit different. The comma is allowing you the opportunity to pause in the middle of one thought. The thought is going to continue, but the author wants you to hold off for just a moment, take a rest, take a beat, take a pause. We know that an exclamation mark denotes some kind of emphasis on something that they want you maybe even to feel, something about being excited maybe, and they'll, they'll punctuate it with an exclamation mark to really drive home that point, or maybe there's an intense emotional reaction in whatever you're reading, and there's an exclamation point to, to talk about the fear or the anger or the sadness. We understand that. We get it. We know that when we see a question mark, that that's not a statement to us, that's a question being asked of us that maybe requires a response. And of course, we all know that the semicolon Nobody knows what a semicolon does, so it doesn't really matter. Nobody, nobody has a clue. I think I've used it like twice correctly, and I was copy-paste. I'll be honest with you, I have no idea what it does. But when an author includes punctuation, they are giving you instructions. And we know from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. This means that Jesus, God, is writing the story of your faith and of my faith. Essentially, God is penning. He is writing the story of our lives. And as he is writing the story of our lives, he chooses to punctuate moments and seasons very intentionally. Let me explain to you a little bit about how this might look in your life. There are moments and seasons in life where God chooses to punctuate it with an exclamation mark. We love these moments. These are the moments when we've been praying for something, for so long and we've been fervently praying in God's presence about this thing to happen or about this person to accept a relationship with Christ or about this advancement on our job or about this or about that and finally we see an answer to prayer that we've been looking for. It's kind of like in that moment it is punctuated with this exclamation mark. There is a lot of energy, there is a lot of enthusiasm, there is a lot of emotion in those moments. Or maybe a punctuate or a, a exclamation mark moment for you. It could be a blessing that God brings into your life that you were not even looking for. Like it came out of the blue. You were not expecting it. You didn't expect God to move a certain way, but he does and you find yourself blessed and grateful. It's this exclamation mark moment. That's how he punctuates that season or that time or that moment in your life. We love those times. In fact, 
We don't ever want to leave those times. It's the reason we get super disappointed when we don't have those times. When we don't have those exclamation mark moments, we usually clamor to try to get them back, and sometimes we'll even take that into our own control, but that's a sermon for a whole other day. And so there's these exclamation mark moments when God punctuates our lives this season, this moment, with exclamation marks. There are also moments and seasons that I have found myself in that are more punctuated by question marks. Those kind of moments and seasons that you walk through that you have more questions than you do answers, where the circumstances start to stack up around you and you're not really sure what's going on, can't really explain it. You're living right, you're doing what you feel like is the right thing to do, and still there are these these problems that are popping up all around your life. And and in those seasons, I have found that God sometimes uses those seasons of, of putting a question mark to punctuate that moment, to allow me to figure out where my faith is really grounded and rooted. It's, it allows me the opportunity to dive deeper into God's word to find the answers for those things because those surface level answers just don't do it in those moments. And so God chooses how and when he wants to punctuate these seasons and these moments in our life. But if you're like me, and I have a feeling that you are in this regard, we have a tendency to take the pen from God's hand and choose for ourselves where and how and when we need to punctuate our lives. And it kind of looks like this. We all have our five-year plan, our 10-year plan, our 20-year plan. And we know that in that plan, when we reach this goal or that goal or this happens or that happens, that that is gonna be punctuated by an exclamation mark, a period, a comma. We have our goal in mind. We know what we want our life to look like, and so we grab God's pen and we're like, well, this is how it's gonna go for me. Maybe there are seasons in your life where it's punctuated by question marks and you don't like it because it's not comfortable, it's not fun, it's extremely challenging, and it can challenge our faith sometimes, that we grab the pen from the author himself, we try and scratch out those question marks and we put periods and commas and maybe an ellipsis in there as well because we just don't wanna deal with the crisis of faith that we might feel ourselves walking through. We take the control, in our minds at least, we take the control away from God and try and punctuate our own lives. It reminds me of this Gracie Allen quote that most of you have probably heard. It says, never put a period where God puts a comma. Never put a period where God puts a comma. I feel like too many times in life we attempt to place a period, a stop, where God wants to place a comma, just a pause. We look at the circumstances and all the facts around us and we deem a season over and done with and we declare that season is done and we put a period right there even if God is not through with that season or us in that season. And as we focus back on our main text this morning about Lazarus and Martha and Mary and Jesus, we have to understand and realize and recognize pretty quickly that for Martha and Mary, death seemed like a pretty logical place to put a period. I mean, when someone dies, that's a pretty definitive, period-worthy, period-deserving event. That is the end of something, full stop. And so they are very hurt in this moment. And then to add extra disappointment in their moment of grief, they, they recognize and they realize that Jesus is late, four days late to be exact. You see, Jesus in this moment did not meet their expectations. I can imagine that, that Martha and Mary, when they got word to Jesus that Lazarus, their friend, or Jesus' friend, their brother was ill, and there, there's enough 
context to surround it to where Jesus knew that it was a problem. He knew that it was a, a grave situation. And so he, you know, when, when he got word, he could have come right away. And I have no doubt that Martha and Mary were probably checking out the window every single moment they possibly could, waiting for Jesus to walk up the driveway, hoping that he was gonna get there in time to heal their brother. They loved their brother. They knew that Jesus loved Lazarus as a friend. But there was a ton of disappointment that had to set in when Lazarus breathed his last breath and Jesus is not anywhere to be found. In fact, we know from the context of our scripture that when Jesus found out that Lazarus was dead, he actually took some time and spent some time away on purpose. So there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of disappointment. Jesus did not do what Martha and Mary had hoped or expected that he would do. He did not come through for them when they needed him to come through for them the most. And I don't know about you, but I have been in moments and places in my life where I have felt that same way, where I felt like I needed God to show up. I've been praying and I've been asking God to heal this situation or to come intervene this way or that way, and when it doesn't happen the way that I feel like it should, when God doesn't show up in the, the time frame and the way of my expectations, then I have a tendency to get really disappointed about that. I have a tendency to, to, to you know, ask the question, God, why are you not there when I need you the most? And I'm, I'm willing to bet that maybe some of you in this room, you have felt that way before, and I'm guessing that some of you maybe even feel that way right now. Maybe that's what brought you inside of the doors of a church today, that you're just trying to figure this whole thing out, but you're wondering where God is because it's not what you expected. He's not come through for you like you expected him to do. And so it's left you hurt, it's left you disappointed. It's not what you expected. And I don't know where that might be in your life. I don't know if that has to do maybe with a relationship that you feel like something in that relationship is over, it's ended, it has died, and, and, it, and God didn't come through the way that you thought he would, and, and so there's a little bit of hurt there, there's pain, there's some animosity even. Maybe it has something to do with your career. Maybe you had this whole idea and this plan for your career and it's not going the way that you wanted. Maybe you had one foot in the career that you wanted, but that door shut and so now you're left trying to figure it out with seemingly no way to get back to the career that you thought that you would have or that you wanted to have. Or maybe it's as simple as a promotion or a raise that you got passed over for. You just feel like that moment of, of time is done and, and you're not sure how to feel about it because you feel like you've prayed about it and God should have come through, but he didn't show up in time. And maybe for you, there's some dream that you've had in your heart for a long time and you just feel like that dream has died. God didn't show up in time. You're disappointed by this. Maybe for you, there's something with your health or chronic illness or whatever it is. There, there might be a moment in your life. You might be living in a season where you feel like something important to you has gone. It has died. And it's left you asking the question, God, where were you? Why were you not there for me when I needed you the most? God did not meet your expectation in that moment. And in those moments, we have a tendency to punctuate them ourselves with a period. Stop. Full stop. It's over. It's dead. Where was God? Why didn't he show up? Martha has these same questions for Jesus about her brother who died. Now, it's one thing when me and you ask those questions of God, because let's be very, very honest about it. We are, are speaking to a God who is not visible to our human eyes. 
And so it's easy for us to question a God that we may not be able to see right now in the natural. It's a whole nother thing for a person, flesh and blood, to be talking to Jesus in person and question him. That's exactly what we see from Martha. We see that, that she realizes that in her grief, in her pain, that she knows that, that Jesus could have showed up to heal Lazarus and the whole situation would have been different. She knows that, that right now she'd be sitting at dinner with her brother who she loved and, and none of this would have happened if Jesus would have just shown up. And we see the honesty, we see the transparency, we see the vulnerability in, Mary, in Martha rather when she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, you can read this any way you want to, and, and, and you, know, you can kind of formulate your own idea of the, the motion behind this statement of, of Martha talking to Jesus, and you can say it's kind of accusatory, and maybe it was, but honestly, really, I think it's just more a, a place of heartbreak, like you, you weren't here. She's stating a fact. You were not here. You were not here, but if you were here, my brother would not have died. You see, what Martha did is she stepped back. She looked at all of the circumstances. She realized that Lazarus, her brother, is in the grave. He's been dead for four days, and there's a large stone rolled over that grave. That chapter of her life is over, and when she sees that, she seems to be punctuating this moment with a period, but Jesus is about to change that to a comma. You see, we don't know in those seasons that we find ourselves in sometimes where we feel like a dream has died or something is gone. We don't know in those seasons of loss and heartbreak what's going on and why we are suffering. Sometimes we can't see it clearly because we don't have the correct perspective. And sometimes it looks like God is missing the mark, Oswald Chambers once said, because we're too short-sighted to see what he's aiming for. Sometimes we don't know what's going on. A, a, a part of our dream has died. We are in mourning. We are experiencing loss over our career, loss over a relationship, loss over hopes and dreams and expectations, and we don't know why it's happening. And our sentiment is the same as Martha's. God, if you just would have done something, then it wouldn't be like this. I wouldn't have to deal with what I'm dealing with now. And as Oswald Chambers says, sometimes it looks like he's missing the mark, but the reality is we just don't know what the mark is. We're short-sighted, we can't see everything that God sees, we can't know everything that God knows, and we just have to accept the fact and the reality that God's ways are higher than our ways. You see, I cannot choose how God moves in my life. I can't. Just as much as Martha and Mary and all of their friends could not physically make Jesus show up to do exactly what they wanted him to do to heal Lazarus in that moment. Just like they could not show up and literally pick him up and move him to the situation and have him heal Lazarus, you and I cannot manipulate God to get into our situation and have him do exactly what we want him to do in those moments in our life. Now there are some times when God does do exactly what I am praying and hoping that God does, but I can tell you that's a whole lot more about me being in the will of God than God moving his will to mine. And so in those moments, we, we have these, these kind of opportunities, not to choose what God's gonna do or to, to force him to do anything, but we have to choose to trust him in those moments. I can't make God do anything at all. Martha could not make Jesus show up, but we can choose to trust that his ways are higher than ours and that he sees the whole entire picture and that he has a perspective that we'll never have the opportunity to see we can trust him. I'm gonna date myself here by sharing this next illustration, but 
How many of you guys remember a series of, of short films back in the 70s, 80s, and I think they, they kind of revived it back in the 90s called Schoolhouse Rock. Anybody remember Schoolhouse Rock? Show your hand. Don't be ashamed. All of us old people raising our hand right now. So, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, if, if you're not familiar, YouTube it. It holds up. It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. But if you're not familiar, just to give you a little bit of an insight on what Schoolhouse Rock was, Schoolhouse Rock was just these series of little short animated uh, music videos, basically. They were just these short little films that were set to music to basically teach kids all of the stuff we were supposed to learn in school, but probably were ignoring while we were in the classroom, right? And we all know that with some help, we can learn things a little bit better. And so for a lot of us, there was a generation that we know things about things we should have learned in school because we watched it on television and they sang a song about it. I mean, they were extensive in the, as, the, as far as the knowledge that they shared with us at Schoolhouse Rock. There was this one song, and it was sung from the perspective of a piece of paper that was a bill, not the person bill, but like a bill that was written on a bill that was introduced into legislature, right? And this bill is trying to become a law. Let's be honest, I learned a lot of things about government because of Schoolhouse Rock. They had a whole other one about the preamble of the Constitution, you know what, maybe we should just all as a country stop what we're doing and watch Schoolhouse Rock for a minute. Like, maybe that's going to get us back. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it says that everybody amen that louder than anything else that we've amen today, but I'll take it. But one of my favorites, and the one that has stuck with me, and if I think about it, it'll be in my head all day, and if you know it, you're welcome, because it's going to be in your head now. Conjunction. Y'all even... Yeah. Conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? Man, if, if, just to kind of let you in on the premise of this, there's a conductor, uh, and, and he is at a, at a rail yard, and he's trying to, to make, a, make sense of all of these train cars coming in and out, and he's trying to, to connect them, and so he uses conjunctions to connect these train cars, and in three minutes, he taught me more about grammar than I ever learned in a classroom in my life, I promise you that. So a conjunction is a word that is used to connect clauses or sentences, thoughts or ideas, right? And before I get too far out on the ledge trying to teach some grammatical term right now and, and, and catch an eye from my wife, I'm going to stay in my lane, but it's important that we know what this is. A conjunction connects two thoughts together, and, but, or. These are all conjunctions. And there's a very important conjunction that Martha adds to this statement that she makes to Jesus that we just read a few moments ago. And so I want to go back and look at verse 21, but I want to add 22 in there as well. Because he says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. We get it. We understand. We feel the pain of Martha in this moment, how she's speaking to Jesus and how she feels. But here's the conjunction. You ready? But, but, and Schoolhouse Rock taught us that this connects these two verses, these two thoughts, these two ideas. She says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. You see, what Martha was doing in this one moment with this one conjunction, she makes an important distinction between fact and faith. 
She realizes and recognizes what the reality of the moment is. She stands there understanding that her brother is dead, knowing that Jesus did not heal him, knowing that Jesus wasn't even there on time and realizing that she doesn't know why. That is the fact of the situation. Jesus, if you were here, you could have healed Lazarus. That is a fact. But, and then the conjunction picks up and displays her faith. But I know that if you ask anything, if you ask anything, that God will give you whatever you ask. Essentially, she's saying, I know that Lazarus is in the grave. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I wish that you would have shown up when I wanted you to show up. However, I know that nothing is impossible with you. But I know that you can do all things. I know that in your infinite wisdom and through your power, you can make anything happen. Martha believed. She knew. She had facts in front of her that she admitted, but she had so much faith that she applied to that situation. And when we look at the things in our life that are punctuated sometimes by a period that we have put there because we feel like that moment or that season or that dream or that relationship or that career or that whatever is dead and it's gone, we can recognize the fact that in our own eyesight, in our reality, that is gone, but we can still choose faith in addition. We can put that conjunction there and say, I know that it looks like this is done and this is over, but God, I know all things are possible with you. God, I know that that dream is over, but I trust you. I know that that career goal is passed, but I trust you. I know that that relationship looks over, but I trust you. You see, Martha, it seemed like she was putting a period there, but that conjunction showed us that she believed that Jesus could put a comma where death put a period. Jesus can add that comma, that pause, where we feel like the thing is over. And in fact, she changes the entire complexion of the conversation because she adds her faith to this conversation. She shows Jesus that she believes that Jesus can do anything. It, it kind of changes the whole environment. It changes the whole conversation that she has, and that happens with us too. Anytime we inject faith into any moment that seems dire, but we believe that God can do something miraculous, God tends to do the miraculous in those moments. And so her faith statement, saying I understand, I recognize, and I believe that you can do anything, leads us to this moment where Jesus makes this statement. The great teacher teaches the greatest thing right here when he says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. At this moment, Jesus declared he's not just teaching about something, he's about to be about something. Jesus, the greatest teacher that we've ever known and that we've ever seen, is, is, is declaring that he's not just teaching about resurrection power, he's not just teaching about life, he is teaching and about to show us that he is the resurrection, that he is the life. He steps over and makes this very important distinction. He's making it very clear that he's not just teaching like he did one chapter before in John chapter 10 when he's teaching some Pharisees and he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's not just teaching that, now he's about to give Lazarus life that he's talking about in life more abundantly. He's in this moment where he's, he's gone from just teaching with his words to now he's about to teach with what he is about to do. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And when he does, Lazarus is raised from the dead. The miraculous happens on that day, changing 
everything, proving that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. Now, if this story sounds familiar about the grave and the stone and the person being brought back from the grave and the cloth and the whole thing, it's because this is absolutely a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do several chapters later. This is absolutely a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection, of the power that was displayed when he was crucified and didn't stay in that grave, but was resurrected and then later ascended into heaven. This is a foreshadowing of that moment. However, it's not a foreshadowing of only that moment. This is also a foreshadowing of something that Jesus wants to do for you. It's a foreshadowing of something that Jesus wants to do for me. It's Jesus' extension, it's his show to let us know that, that he possesses the power to resurrect our lives and to resurrect those things in our lives that we thought were dead. He can bring them back to life. And if God has the power that is strong enough to speak life into an empty or into a tomb where Lazarus's dead body is, then it's strong enough to speak into the tomb of that relationship that you think is dead. It is powerful enough to speak into that marriage that you think is over. It's powerful enough to speak into that dream that you think is gone, that hope, that career, and resurrect those things that have died in your life. Because he is the resurrection. He is the life. And he can put a comma where we tend to put a period. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves and that we all have to face in the mirror is the question that Jesus asks Martha when he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this morning that Jesus has the power? Do you believe this morning that Jesus has the authority and the power to resurrect those things in our life that we thought were dead, to bring them back and to restore those things that were lost? and to heal those places in our lives and in our hearts that we feel like are unreachable. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God can place a comma where we see a period? Do you trust him? Do we trust him to do things in his timing, in his way? Not trying to force him to to answer our prayers the way we might want him to answer our prayers, not trying to force him to resurrect the things in our timeline that we want resurrected, but trust that he knows what is best. Because the reality is, is that if we choose to trust and we choose to believe that God can resurrect those dead things in our lives, sometimes those things are resurrected, but it just looks a little different than we think that it would. When Lazarus came out of that grave, the Bible talks about that he had linen cloths wrapped around his hands and his feet and around his head. And, and for us, if we don't know kind of the, the custom of the day as far as burial traditions go, it would just kind of seem like it was kind of loosely there. And so getting out of that is no big deal. But historians point to the fact that in this period of time, part of the embalming process would have been wrapping Lazarus in almost up to 100 pounds of cloth. So these strips of cloth laid over him wrapped around him, up to 100 pounds, wrapped on his body. People believe that, that there was so much wrapping on their heads that, that sometimes it would add a foot of circumference to their heads. And so when Jesus calls Lazarus out of that tomb, Lazarus doesn't just come strolling out, limping maybe a little bit, trying to get his bearings because he's breathing again for the first time in four days. No, 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 Lazarus shows up with the only thing that we could equate it to that we understand is looking probably more like a mummy than a human. 
It was not at all what Martha and Mary probably expected. Jesus could have done it any way that he wanted. Jesus rose or, or resurrected him from the dead. He could have made sure that the grave clothes fall off before he came out of the tomb, right? But for some reason, he's still wearing the grave clothes, and it was probably a shocking sight. It was not what Martha and Mary had expected in that moment. But you know what Jesus did? He brought life back to the lifeless. And they were grateful, and they were glad. And there are some times when God resurrects some things in our lives that when they come back, they don't look like how we think they're going to come back. God may choose to resurrect things in a certain way that we did not see coming at all. We want God to resurrect that career by giving us the same exact job that we had before, but God might resurrect that career by letting that job stay dead and opening doors that we didn't even know existed and walking through those into a new career path that we never even thought of. But God can bring those things to life. It might just be different than what we thought. God can bring that, that dream and resurrect that dream that you've had, that you've held in your heart, that you've never told anybody else about, but that you thought was dead. It just might look a little different when he brings it back to life. It might not be the exact same dream that you thought. Maybe it's an even better dream. Maybe it's a dream that he's putting on the inside of your heart that is more in line with his will and what he wants for you and your life to glorify him. When that relationship, when you ask him to resurrect that relationship, he might not bring that person back, but I can promise you that he can heal those places in your heart that you think are damaged and bruised and messed up forever. He can heal those places. It might not look like we want it to look. It might not have all the bandages off of it and exactly how we had thought that it was gonna be. But God can resurrect because Jesus is the resurrection and he is the life. And when we experience that, we have this question to answer. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Do we believe that God can do it? Do we believe that Jesus can resurrect? Do we believe that he is the resurrection? Do we believe that he is the life? He knows what's best. His ways are higher than ours. I believe if we believe that, that we will see him do those miraculous things in our lives. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.